Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow you. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself if you dare. Come, inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 18. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. For tonight's episode, we'll dive into the deep, dark waters that are the minds of M.M. Kelly... Kevin David Anderson, and Luciano Morano. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies, 
and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. For our first story tonight, we are very much out of the frying pan and into the fire. So try not to get burned. From author M.M. Kelly, I give you A Priest Saved Me. This is something for the families of those affected. A chain of events that I've bore witness to and need to leave a record of. It started innocently enough. I was sitting out on the patio with a small fire. The way the flames danced was entrancing, like a belly dancer caught in a strobe light. I knew I shouldn't touch it, but my hand drew close to the tips of the flickering flames. My body kicked in and jerked my hand back from the heat. Something urged my hand back to the tips of the flames. The flames kissed my fingertips. I jerked my hand back intentionally. Red, wrinkled, I could still feel the heat trapped under my skin. I couldn't put my fingers on what made me do it. If I'm being honest, it hurt like hell. Yet it seemed worth it. Those red and orange hips flicking back and forth in my fire pit. I put the cage over the top of the pit and went inside. I felt a certain tugging to go back out to it. I fought it and went to bed. That night was rough. I kept waking up with a certain compulsion to go check the fire. I finally went to look at the fire pit from my bedroom window. The flames were still burning strong. I forced myself back to bed. When I woke up, the fire was still burning. The next morning, I found myself back out on the patio. I couldn't stop watching it. I remember seeing that face for the first time. It was vague, but the eyes and mouth were staring at me, fueled by the hot coals. I checked my watch. Somehow, I had lost two hours. I rushed to work, reeking of smoke. During my lunch break, I watched it rain. The whole ride home, I could smell myself. I considered rolling the windows down so the rain would wash the smell away. When I got home, I went to the kitchen window and looked outside. The fire was raging. It had managed to somehow grow even against the pouring rain. The next thing I know, I'm standing out in the rain, holding a mouse over the fire. The face in the fire looked contented. Where'd the mouse go? I must have dropped in. I hadn't gotten much sleep the night before. I went about my day. Nothing else was out of the ordinary. A few days passed. My days were normal, other than the fire that refused to die. I went downstairs to get my morning coffee. The clock on my coffee maker read 6.35 a.m., the next thing I remember is pouring the coffee into my favorite mug and seeing 8.26 a.m. I hadn't sidetracked. I looked out the kitchen window and the flame was considerably larger than it was before. 
It was higher than the cage on my fire pen. The face was getting more defined. It was becoming feminine in its curvatures. It stared right through me and seemed to nod in approval to me. I looked around. The only thing out of the ordinary was a black high-heeled shoe sitting in my sink. My stomach turned. I remember the mouse hanging there by its tail. Did some poor woman find herself fueling my fire? I threw the shoe in the pen. I called in sick, then sat in a hot shower. My skin crawled. Two hours gone. Did I murder someone? I can't recall even seeing another person this morning. A moment of sudden clarity came to me. Skin under my fingernails. I dug through my living room. Insurance pamphlets, sales contracts, 8 a.m. My address in her planner. I sat on my couch in awe. No blood. A little tossed up, but relatively neat. Where was she? I searched my own house. Attic, basement, closets. No body. The fire couldn't have possibly consumed a whole person in that short period of time. Could it? I had to get out. I left my house without incident. I wanted help. I'm by no means a man of God, but I would have started going to church right then if it would all stop. I went to the first church I could find. I hauled up in the confession booth. What would you like to confess, my son? I checked my watch. No time loss. I, um... I'm not sure, Father. Surely there are transgressions which you would like to be absolved of. I think I may have killed an insurance saleswoman, I offered. You think? Do you not know? I really don't know what happened to her, but I found her shoe in my sink. I guess that's why I'm here. Son, I don't know that I can help with those kinds of problems. I think there's something evil at my house, I pleaded. I keep losing hours at a time. I wake up doing things that normally I'd never do. The priest was silent. Every breath was burdened by the situation I laid before him. I waited for what seemed like years. I was starting to expect Jesus himself to walk through the doors before he'd give me another word. He gave a heavy exhale. When you wake up, what are you doing? Usually putting things into my fire pit. And the fire never goes out, either. So you know what it is. I heard the light door to the confessional spring back to the shut position. I raced out after him. He was making a break for his office. I grabbed his arm. He jerked around, his face red like the backside of a baboon. Release me, foul thing! He shouted, grabbing my wrist. I stared into his eyes. I felt hopeless. My legs fell under me. I sobbed on the floor. Where else could I go for help? He knew where I could get help. He even knew what was going on and he locked himself in his office. I crawled to a pew. I waited. Hours. I waited longer. I must have fallen asleep because suddenly it was sunny again. And there was the priest, tapping my shoulder. He didn't look at me, 
He didn't say a word. He handed me a beat-up business card. It was plain white, plain black text. It just had an address. Get out and don't come back, he said in a tone that warned me not to push my luck. I got up and went to my car. The address wasn't too far away, so I decided to see what this suggestion of his was. The building was how I imagined the business card was years ago. Plain, white, clean. It wasn't a home, but it wasn't obviously a business either. I approached the door and knocked. I knocked again. I wanted to leave, but I needed help in a bad way. The door opened quietly by a large older man, his white hair wild. He had to have been well over six feet tall, with shoulders of a linebacker and the white collar of a priest. Can I help you? He asked nonchalantly. I handed him the card. A priest gave me this. He gave me a suspicious look up and down. What kind of trouble are you having? I'm not really sure, I admitted. He motioned for me to come in. As I passed him, he took a big whiff of me. You smell like a fireplace. We sat in what looked like an old-fashioned study. He lit a candle on his desk. It danced quietly. Then the tip was sucked in towards the candle. It smashed and squeezed into a little mouth and bit at the air above the wick. Aye, the fire ghosts, he said to himself, pursing his lips in thought. Those are a pain in the arse. What are they? What are you? I don't really know what they are. I just try to get rid of them before they try to eat every damn thing. Me? I like to think of myself as a philanthropist. I like to spend my free time helping the less fortunate. He paused for a moment. And right now, it looks like you're less fortunate. I couldn't argue with that. He told me to go home and tell it to get the hell out of my house. He seemed reasonably informed of the situation, so I trusted him. He gave me some kind of communion or blessing or something, and I departed from my home, assuming it was still standing. The ride home was short, and when I arrived, the front porch was lined with lit candles. I didn't own a single candle. I sat in my car, working up the nerve. That is your house! I yelled at myself with the windows rolled up. You get your ass in there and tell them. I was fired up. I puffed my chest out, threw my shoulders back with my head held high and marched my average frame up the steps. I busted through the door like a ton of dynamite. A faint smell of char. A subtle haze of smoke in the air. Get the fuck out! I screamed like I was someone. Loud enough that I felt the veins in my neck strain against my skin. The crackle of fire guffawed to my house. Two letters burned themselves into the wall of my living room. N-O. My blood boiled. I worked my ass off for this. I didn't ask for shit like this to come into my life. Get. Out. Now! I bellowed, nearly burping the flames from my belly. The fire flared from the wall towards me, 
Between angry and stupid, I stood steadfast. The flames parted, millimeters from my face. They lashed out over and over, slowly coming closer as if burning through an invisible barrier. I finally came to my senses and ran back to my truck. I went back to the priest and gave him the rundown. It's really not safe to keep candles burning while you're gone, he said dryly. I don't even own candles, I assured him. A chill ran down my spine. Then why the fuck didn't those flames incinerate me? He laughed to himself. He didn't seem surprised. Son, I blessed you in case it wasn't a pushover. I'm glad you made it. He smacked me on the shoulder and headed for the door. Take me to your place, he sighed. This is a job for old men. When we got to my place, I followed him in. They tried to discourage me, but ultimately I had to see what he could possibly do. He took his clerical collar off, then proceeded to completely disrobe, save for his tidy whities He was littered with trophies of battles long past. Burnt skin that never returned to its normal state. Long, dark scars that traversed his muscular frame like tattoos. He took a long, slow breath, and very gently pushed open the unlatched front door. He braced himself, his feet in a broad stance. A blaze of fire ripped to my living room and towards the front door. His broad, battered hands snapped up to chest level and gripped it like he'd grabbed a raging bull by the horns. With a grunt, he threw the fire away from him. It was like watching a sumo wrestler. He waddled into the house with a wide-legged stance. I couldn't detect fear or uncertainty. He asked you to leave, he said into the house, loudly but without force, like an elementary teacher. He stepped to the side. An invisible something slammed into my bookshelf. The shelves cracked and the paperbacks tumbled to the floor. He hit his chest firmly with his right fist. A challenge. Flames spit up around him in a circle. He braced. The flames collapsed in on him like a ring of waves converging on a single point. The priest let out a commanding bark and started pushing the flames back with his bare hands. The scars across his body burned bright red like hot steel. His muscles struggled. Then, everything was silent. All I could hear was my breathing. His breathing. My heart. His heart. His grip released, and his flat palm stood out against the onslaught of sentient flame. I watched his face twist, his mouth scream silently as the flame sucked into his hands. The scars burned brighter. They dropped to one knee, gasping for air. I ran to his side and tried to help him up, but burned my hands. His skin was hot enough that I couldn't stand to be within feet of him. His body cooled, and I helped him into his priestly attire. I took him back, but he wouldn't answer a single question on the ride back. When he climbed from my truck, he reminded me, No one will believe you if you send them to me. I'm just a broken old man. Broken from the years I spent at war as a young man. He smiled and gave me a friendly nod. I never saw him again. I didn't even have his name to watch for his obituary. You know, 
just in case. This episode of Horror Hill is brought to you by Best Fiends. You want to know what I find really scary? That's right. Puzzles. Can't put them together. Can't make the pieces fit. In fact, the very thought of having to approach a problem methodically, fully engaging my logic and critical thinking skills, just scares the willies out of me. But as you probably also know, fear can be fun. Fear can be exciting. And that excitement is why I'd like to talk to you about Best Fiends. A challenging, interactive puzzle adventure you can experience anytime, anywhere. With intuitive gameplay, an easy learning curve, and so many challenging puzzles and adorable characters to unlock, Best Fiends is easily one of the most enjoyable puzzle games I've... well, I guess I've ever played. And Best Fiends really never gets old, with monthly updates including new characters, levels, and events. And remember, no Wi-Fi connection is necessary, so you can literally play Best Fiends anywhere, inside or outside, like out in the hammock, kind of like how I prefer, or with a certain degree of discretion, even at work. And as I tend to get up pretty early these days, I like to play Best Fiends while I have my morning coffee. Helps get the gears churning in my mind. They're a little rusty at that time of day. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. And you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Thank you for your support of this program and of the sponsors that make it possible. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So finding the perfect place is easier than ever. And so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom. And you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together. But you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them. Because they're family. 
And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. You've been listening to A Priest Saved Me by M. M. Kelly. Well, I guess that's why our parents warn us not to play with fire. <laughs> For our next story this evening, we'll see the lengths to which two friends will go to undo the past, and what sacrifices they make along the way. Without further ado, from author Kevin David Anderson, I give you the Fubar Ritual. What? The hell is that? Mark said. It's where we're going to conduct the ritual, Albert said. Mark leaned forward in his wheelchair, pointing. No, I mean that. According to my research, this symbol will bring forth the demon. The one that will do our bidding and restore your legs. Yeah, okay, but... Um... I think you drew the wrong symbol. Hmm. It's right. It's a pentagram, sometimes referred to as a pentacle, to those in the know. No, it's not, you idiot. That's the Star of David, and unless the demon is Jewish, I don't think he's coming. Look, you put me in charge of the ritual, Albert said, and I'm doing my best. I found this place, didn't I? Yeah, about that. Mark rolled back and gestured at the structure's dilapidated roof. We're supposed to be in a place of darkness and death. A cemetery, a slaughterhouse, the DMV. Anything but an abandoned... What was this, a factory? Albert got to his feet. Do you know what they used to make here? He gestured to the cobweb-covered equipment and conveyor belts around them, faintly visible in the light cast from Albert's lantern. Mark shook his head. No idea. This was the main factory for Anderson's turkey pot pies. Mark folded his arms. Never heard of them. Neither did I. They went out of business in the 80s, but the town archives say this place was the biggest employer in the county. They made millions of pies a year. Um, so? So... This place, this building, is where millions of turkeys met their end. How's that for death and darkness? Mark sighed, looking unimpressed. Okay, fine, Albert said. Look, it's a small town and it's all we got. Do you want to do this or not? Mark thought for a moment. Did he really want to do this? Regaining the use of his legs through dark magic... Seems like the kind of thing that works in the movies, but not in real life. Oh well, it's not like he had anything else to do tonight in this crappy, unsympathetic town. And the worst thing that could happen is, well, he'd wake up tomorrow still crippled. Okay, what else do you got? Mark said. Albert smiled. Flesh that was once alive. Albert pulled something from his bag. Is that a chicken? A frozen chicken? 
Look, if you're gonna nitpick everything... No, no, Mark said. Please continue. Albert pulled out another item. The hair of a virgin. Where did you get that hair? My sister. Mark laughed. Your sister's not a... <sighs> Mark stopped himself. Never mind. Please continue. Albert pulled out the next item. An object of mysterious origin. He pulled away its tinfoil confines, revealing something that was both smooth and rough, hairy and balding, colorful and transparent. What is that? Mark leaned forward. It looks familiar. It should, Albert said. They served it in the cafeteria last week with the meatless meatloaf. Remember? Oh, yeah, Mark said. I heard Paul Crendler ate one on a dare. He hasn't been back to school since. Object of mysterious origin, Albert repeated, a little more prideful this time. Then he said it with the other objects. And last but not least, an offering from the modern world. Is that your little brother's phone? Yeah, Albert said, turning it over, showing off the Pikachu protective case. He's getting upgraded for his birthday next week anyway, so he won't have long to miss this one. Besides, all he ever does is play Pokemon Go. <laughs> so immature. You play that? No, Albert said. Not really. A bit. On the weekends, if I have time. Are you ready to get this party started? Absolutely. Let's go. What do I do? Albert tossed him a lighter. Start lighting the candles. There were at least twenty candles arranged in a circle around the pentagram and or Star of David, whose diameter was about six feet. It was obvious that Albert had swiped his little sister's sidewalk chalk because the six-pointed star was purple, and the candles Mark was lighting were leftover birthday candles, the kind you find in a junk drawer, half-used and fashioned to represent various themes of birthdays past. Pirate candles... Star Wars, Dora the Explorer, Curious George, Dinosaurs, and quite a few that were just numbers. The half-melted number 8, 9, and 11. With neither of them having jobs, the budget for the dark magic ritual was on the low side, but this was starting to feel ridiculous. He couldn't imagine what kind of demon would show up with these crappy offerings. Oh well, this was all just make-believe anyway. And in some ways, it was as much for Albert as it was for Mark. Albert harbored guilt for Mark's condition. Mark had known that for a while, but they'd never talked about it. What was the point? It had been Albert's idea to build the go-kart when they were nine. And it had been Albert's idea to test it on Foreman's Hill. And it had been Albert who had chickened out at the last moment, leaving Mark to pilot the cart down the hill alone. Albert wasn't responsible for putting the enormous oak in Mark's way, the one he cracked his head on, and broke his back. But he did push him off, running along the side, his legs pumping like pistons, and just before he let go, he said, See you on the other side. Mark never asked Albert what he had meant by that. In fact, he'd even forgotten about it with all that had happened after hitting the tree. Physical therapy learning to live in half of a body and adjusting every vision he'd ever had about his own future took up most of his time. It wasn't until recently that he remembered those words. Why? He couldn't say. 
Mark lit the last candle and looked over at Albert. What are you doing? I'm outlining the whole area in salt. We stay on the outside and the demon is stuck in the inside. What's that smell? Lavender, I think. Bath salt. Yeah, my mom has bags of this stuff. The purplish salt went with the pretty purple chalk star, which Mark wanted to comment on, but then thought better of it. Where do you want me? Set yourself at the bottom of the pentagram, outside the salt line, and make sure you're out of reach. How far can a demon reach? Albert stopped pouring salt. Um, I didn't see. He glanced over at the papers he printed out from the internet. Not sure. Wasn't a real question, Mark said, rolling into position. I'll just eyeball it. Finishing the bath salt circle, Albert tossed the bag to the side, then picked up his short stack of papers. He flipped through them for a second, then seemed to find his place. Okay, we need to picture a door. What kind of door? Mark said. I don't know. Just a door. Well, like a single door? Double door? Does it have a screen or one of those little windows or peepholes? Albert flipped through his pages. It can be any kind of door. We just have to picture the same door. What was the first door you thought of? Honestly? Yeah. Your sister's? What? Well, remember before she painted it all black, it had that rainbow pattern with flowers and My Little Pony stickers? Why the hell would you think of that? I always thought it was so cool. My parents would never let me do that to my door. Fine, Albert said. We'll both think of that. Um, which version? All black or My Little Ponies? Ponies. Albert frowned. I'm sensing that you're not taking this seriously. Mark chuckled. Dude, I just lit Star Wars and Curious George candles to summon a demon. Hey, I went to a lot of trouble to set this up. Mark grimaced. Dude, Curious George candles. Okay, Robert said. I went to a moderate amount of trouble to set this up. Mark didn't respond just stared back at his friend. Yeah. Okay, I half-assed some of this, but this stuff is just symbols. Superficial offerings. He held out the papers. It's these incantations that are the real magic. And according to EnterTheDarkness.com, this will work. Well, if it's on the internet, it must be real, Mark said. What's next? Albert turned off the lantern. Although there were almost twenty candles, they didn't put out anywhere near as much light as the lantern had. Darkness within the abandoned factory grew closer, and Mark couldn't see very much beyond the circle. The conveyor belts and static equipment were just strange shapes in the encroaching darkness. Albert sat opposite Mark. He crossed his legs and met his friend's eyes. Are you visualizing the door? Mark nodded. Ponies and all. Then let's begin. Albert held out the papers. Krabba, Zetoa, Bo Kerpla, Estra, Mine, Shrekrepta. What language is that? I don't know. That literally sounds like Klingon. It's not Klingon. How do you even know you're pronouncing it right? Phonetic spelling was provided with the text, and there's a how to video on YouTube. Any more questions? No. 
I'm good. Sorry. I'm picturing the door. Sabatwo. Sabatwo. Fraka Cronin Pickle. Tittle Pow. Witchin Camp. The Fenny Go Menra. Several candles flared a bit as if a small cloud of methane had passed near. Mark's heart quickened, and he gazed across the circle. Mark saw his own surprise mixed with excitement mirrored on Albert's face. Keep going. Um, Albert searched for his place. Ramen, Koodle, Basum, Chucker, Me, Fenny, Off, Fenny Lu, Fenny Bop Un Khan, Fenny Amadeus. Is that it? No, there's like this whole page I have to do. Why'd you stop? Well, I... I just noticed something. Before Mark could ask what, he noticed it as well. The center of the star was gone. He could still see the chalk outline all right, but the center section, where once there was old scuffed cement floor, there was now no floor at all. And in its place, a hole. When did that happen? Albert shook his head. He motioned to the papers in his hand with a tilt of his head. Mark nodded enthusiastically, then took a deep breath in an attempt to quell his shaking hands. When that didn't work, he gripped the arms of his chair tight. Fenny, Abdul Esson, Fenny Macklin Kendow. As Albert continued his recitation, Mark couldn't take his eyes off the hole in the cement floor. Was it an optical illusion? No. It's real. The candle shed no light into the opening. But somehow, Mark knew that even if he'd shown a flashlight down into it, its steps would remain unseen. The whole idea that there was a hole in the middle of the floor appearing from nowhere was disturbing on several levels. Where did it come from? What was down there? How far to the bottom? And what would come through? But even more mind-blowing, something was happening. Really happening. Albert's shitty household offerings and internet magic spell was actually working. Mark felt himself roll back a few inches. Albert stopped reading again and the two stared at one another. Then Mark rolled again. He reached down and locked his wheels. And that's when he realized why he'd been rolling. The floor was tilting. Not a lot. Just a little. Like a slight flutter of a seesaw. Keep going, Mark said. Almost done. Mark felt a little nauseated and looked out into the factory to steady himself. He'd always been prone to motion sickness even before the accident. He needed to lock his eyes on a fixed object in the distance. The faint outline to the conveyor belts would do, but he couldn't find them. Not the belts or the equipment. Gone. Beyond the candlelight which reached about fifteen feet around the circle, he could only see darkness. No shapes of any kind. Just black. His stomach was tight, and it felt as if he'd swallowed a handful of nails. And though he knew in every fiber of his being that it could not be true, it could not help the feeling 
that they were not in the factory anymore. He looked over at Albert, who seemed to be finishing up. Twana, Kalpindru, Fenima, Fenitru, Fenicto, und Ibi Estroleni, no Feni, no Feni, no Feni more. Now what? Albert shrugged. I guess. A clanking sound rose up from the hole. Old chains clanking, turning, twisting. Then a rhythmic clicking, like something turning on a pulley. Slow, steady. The sound grew louder. Mark imagined something being hoisted upward on thick chains. The sounds grew loud, as if whatever was making them had risen from the hole and was right in front of them. But they saw nothing. Then, after excruciatingly long seconds, movement. Staring into the hole, Mark's mouth fell open as something large rose from the darkness. Hoisted up into the air by unseen chains, it rose before them. Something rectangular. Something thin. Something... Pink? Your sister's door? Mark said as it rose above them. The clanking sound stopped and the door... Gold hinges fastened to a purple frame and all, dangled ten feet in the air, hovering over the star. Mark felt dizzy and realized he wasn't breathing. He took two fast breaths, and before he exhaled the second one, Albert was at his side. Thought you might be lonely over here by yourself. Mark nodded. Good call. They looked up at the door hanging above them like some strange piece of modern art that neither one of them knew what to do with. Far in the distance there was a tumbling sound, like someone falling downstairs, rolling, fighting against the fall, pausing for a second, then tumbling again. Then something hit the door with a powerful thud. What the hell? A deep voice said from the other side of the door. Ah, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Um... Hello? Mark said. Are you all right? Who said that? Returned the voice. The door handle started to wiggle, like someone trying to figure out how it worked. Before Mark could answer, the door flew open. He caught sight of a very surprised face as it fell forward, screaming, Holy shit! Mark watched in horror as a body tumbled to the door, landing with a splat. It lay very still for several moments. Mark reached out, wanting to help, but Albert grabbed his arm and shook his head. Mark sat back in his chair. Are you hurt? <laughs> the demon said. Sprawled out and naked, it slowly drew its limbs in towards its body like a scared child huddled on the cold floor. Its legs were shriveled twigs and didn't look as if they functioned. Gray skin wrapped loosely around its bent bones and gaunt legs. The toenails hadn't been cut in a century, and its left arm was in the same condition. The right arm was another matter. It looked like the arm of a bodybuilder, ripped with muscle, almost cartoonishly so, and its skin glistened with a healthy flesh tone. So different from everything else on the demon, it was easy to imagine it originating from an entirely different body. Struggling, it lifted its bald, wrinkled head, 
eyes fluttering, one green, one scarlet. Oh, where am I? Indiana? Albert said. We summoned you. The demon flipped onto its belly and used its muscled arm to rise, resting on a pointed elbow. Summon me? You can't summon me! Why not? Mark said. I did my time in the human world. It chewed me up and spit me out! It said, spittle coming from its gray lips. I'm retired. Albert leaned over and whispered to Mark. I read about this. It said he would say anything to get out of doing what we ask. Try to trick us. Lie. We, um... We don't believe you, Mark said. You have been summoned and must obey. The demon chuckled. <laughs> you must have screwed it up really good if you got me here. Is that a frozen chicken? It's almost thawed, Albert countered. With its one good arm, the demon pulled itself forward to the edge of the purple salt and sniffed. Lavender? It's my mom's favorite. Mmm, very nice, the demon said, and rolled onto its back. One moment I'm having a martini in my condo with a beautiful view of the river Styx. The next, I'm... Where's the door all the way up there? I almost broke my neck. Sorry, Albert said. It's our first time using black magic, or any magic really. You don't say, the demon said, rolling back onto his belly, the lower half of his body flopping uselessly. Listen here, kids. This isn't amateur hour. You have summoned a demon. Not a high demon, or even a very powerful one, but a demon, nonetheless. In my day, I might have been able to do something for you, or I might have just eaten your faces. Either way, we would have moved forward. But read my lips. I am retired. So send me back, and we'll forget about your little trip down Diagon Alley, and you'll both, uh, keep your faces, and I can get back to my martini. No, Albert said. You can return to your domain when you have granted our request. Okay... This is the last time I'm going to put it nicely. You have screwed this up! Your offerings are insulting at best! And you're... Am I... Am I lying on a Star of David? Yeah, Albert said. It might be. Jesus Christ, the demon said. Whatever it is, although I can make an educated guess. The demon looked at Mark's chair, then continued. You're not going to get it. Send me back. Mark felt a surge of anger. It was as if all the doctors he'd seen in the past eight years with their lack of encouragement, depressing diagnoses, and their just-learn-to-live-with-it attitude were fueling his temper. For years, he wanted to scream almost every day. Scream at the doctors, his over-concerned parents, his teachers with their unwanted pity, at everyone in this stupid little town. Even at Albert with his two perfectly healthy legs. And here was a chance to undo all that, make everything go away, hit the reset button. And this thing, this shriveled little creature with the power to fix him, was saying no. You're not going anywhere, Mark said. You have been summoned, and you will grant our request. 
Have it your way, kids, the demon said. But since your offerings are dismal, and I suspect your reading of the unholy words was equally appalling, there must be a sacrifice. What? Albert said. No, 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 no. There's nothing in my research that said we needed to make a sacrifice once we have you here. The offering should be enough. How did you come by your research? The demon asked. Google, Albert said. The demon rolled his differently colored eyes. Check the fine print on your instructions. Paragraph 6, subsection 6, line 6. You can read it for yourself. Albert skimmed through his handful of papers, flipping to almost the last page. Oh, crap. What? He's telling the truth. What does it say? If the offerings are deemed subpar and or there are errors in the reading of the unholy words, then a sacrifice must be made in order to proceed. One human soul per request. The more significant the sacrifice to the one making the request, the more potent will be the magic used. Which means, Mark, the demon smiled, the more important the soul is to you, the more powerful the magic I can use to grant your request. Still want to play this game, kids? I swear I didn't know about this, Albert said. What uh, do, do you want to do? What will happen to our sacrifice? If you're even considering going forward with this, the demon said, then you really don't want to know. Shit, Albert said. Well, that doesn't sound good. Let's uh, pick someone we hate. Do you two idiots understand the meaning of sacrifice? Sending someone you hate into the darkness isn't a sacrifice! It's a favor! One you would owe for. If you want this to work, it must be someone you care about. Love, even. The stronger your feelings, the greater the chance of getting what you want. I cannot be any clearer than that. Albert leaned close to Mark and lowered his voice. How about Paul Crindler? If he really did eat the mysterious object served in the cafeteria, then he's dead already. Even if he isn't, I don't have any feelings. I, I mean, I don't care about him, Mark whispered. Oh, how about Mary Fang? He'd been crushing on her since eighth grade. No, Mark said too loud, then lowered his voice back to a whisper. She's the one I want to ask to prom. I've been dreaming of dancing with her the moment I get my legs back. If you don't get your legs back, you won't be dancing with anyone at the prom. I guess, Mark said, wondering if he could really do it. Then he had a thought. Maybe there was a better choice. Someone that would be a real sacrifice. Someone that he had cared about since kindergarten. Someone that had cared about him. And someone that was partially responsible for him being in this wheelchair in the first place. But could he do it? So, Mary then? Albert whispered. Mark nodded. Has a choice been made? The demon said. Yes, Mark said. Do not speak the name aloud. Hold it in your mind, the demon said. The magic will be more powerful. Mark was relieved about that. He didn't know if he could go through with it otherwise. Well, what next? Albert said. Your request? The demon said. Again, do not speak it aloud. 
I must take it from you. The demon closed his eyes and Mark could feel him entering his memories, like someone flipping through folders in a file cabinet. That little town of yours, Bunker Hill, has made you feel like an outcast, the demon said. Yes, Mark said. Bullies call you wheels, halfling, and roller boy. Mark nodded, his eyes glassy. You couldn't go on a field trip last week because of the hiking and the stairs to the lookout. Many places that everyone else can go are off limits to you, the demon said. Yes, Mark said. You want to go anywhere they can go? Yes. You want your legs to work just as well as everyone else's in that shithole you call a town, the demon said. I understand. Yes. It is time. Go through the door. What door? Albert said. The demon pointed a finger to their left. The pink door with its purple frame was now resting on the ground ten feet away, at the edge of where the candlelight faded into darkness. Go through it now! Mark felt the urgency in the demon's voice deep in his chest. His heart thumped like a jackhammer. He unlocked his wheels, spun to the left, and headed for the door. Wait! Albert said. Mark didn't want to look back. He reached the door and grabbed the handle. Wait, Mark! Albert pleaded. I can't move! Mark turned the handle. Why can't I move? The door opened, and Mark hesitated. He looked back. Albert was still in the position he'd left him, crouched next to a chair that was no longer there. The demon's enormous hand, muscles pulsing, reached out beyond the circle. Its fingers enveloped Albert's ankle. No! Albert screamed. Go now! The demon shouted. Or his sacrifice will be for nothing! I'm sorry, Albert, Mark said, not loud enough for anyone to hear. Mark turned back to the door. A scream boomed behind him as he propelled himself through the pink and purple opening. Before he passed completely through its frame, he felt himself falling. His chair fell away, and he watched it tumble into a void of swirling color. There was an explosion of fire. He felt the heat before he saw the flames rising from beneath him. The flames consumed him in an instant, and everything burned. Even his legs were on fire. He felt them burn. Mark sat up in his bed covered in sweat. He ran his hands over his body quickly checking for flames. He wasn't on fire. He wasn't even warm. What the hell? He said to an empty bedroom. He couldn't remember how he'd gotten home or putting his pajamas on. Did it really happen? Although the flames were not real, the pain he felt certainly was. Even the pain in his legs. Real pain. In his legs. He pulled the blankets away and looked at his legs. They didn't look different. He touched them with both hands. No feeling. Nothing. A stupid dream. Just stupid, wishful dreaming. He wiped his eyes and ran his fingers through his hair. If disappointment were a sledgehammer, it would have cracked his skull open. The worst of it was that he now had to summon the energy to get up and be the town's crippled boy again, as he was yesterday 
and the day before. Soft sobbing filtered into his room. Familiar. He looked at his slightly ajar door. The weeping got louder. Then, there was a thud from down the hall. Mom! Mark yelled. There was uncontrollable crying coming from somewhere in his house. Mark reached for his chair. Mom! Are you alright? His mom responded. But through the crying, he could not understand what she said. Dad! Mark yelled. What's wrong with Mom? A helicopter buzzed the house as Mark's dad yelled back from down the hall. I don't know, son. We can't. Are you okay? I'm fine. Why is Mom crying? Just stay there, Mark's dad said. Everything is going to be all right. Everything. Dad? Mark lunged for his chair. It was a bit out of reach, but he managed. He slid in his seat and moved to the hall. His heart was racing, his fingers trembling, and his grip on his hand rims was shaky, barely enough to propel him. He leaned forward, hoping the chair would follow. The sound of his mother's tears was maddening. Was she hurt? Was someone hurting her? And why had Dad stopped talking? Mom, I'm coming! Mark shouted, barreling toward the bedroom door. He had navigated the opening to his room hundreds, no, thousands of times. But in his desperation to reach his mother, his aim was off. Not a lot, but enough to hang his left rear wheel on the doorframe. His chair tilted one way, and Mark tumbled the other. He hit the floor with a solid smack, a stomach-punching belly flop. He looked back at the empty chair almost with a look of betrayal. Instantly, he realized he could crawl to his parents' room in half the time it would take to remount his chair. With the wind knocked out of him and bruised ribs, he pulled himself forward. Dad! Mark shouted, rising up on his hands. The lack of response sent a wave of fear through his body. He hand-walked the next few yards in seconds. The door to the master bedroom was ajar, and with no concern how it would feel, he hit the door with his forehead, sending it wide open. Mom! The first thing he saw was her face. One middle-aged cheek pressed to the carpet. The next was her outstretched hands, fingernails digging into the shag. One leg was on the floor, half under the bed. The other was trapped midway between the floor and the bed, hung up in the bedding. Mom! Mark hurried over to her and took her hand. What's wrong? I... I can't move, she said tears running into the carpet. Mark rose up, scanned the bed, catching sight of his father, sitting up, hands over his face. Dad, Mom fell, Mark said. Please, come help her. His father dropped his hands, looked at his son, and with glassy eyes said, I can't. This can't be right, said Bill Hollowell, weekend anchor at CNN. Just read the statement, Bill the news director sent through Bill's earpiece. We're going to skip the usual intro and go right into it. But John, is this true? We have no way of verifying it, but it's an official statement. We'll cut to Jill on location after you read the release. You can throw some questions her way. You're live in five, four. Bill watched the opening graphic scroll across the monitor, and before he was really ready, the stage manager pointed at him. He swallowed hard before speaking. 
After a 48-hour quarantine of the entire town of Bunker Hill, Indiana, the CDC, in collaboration with the World Health Organization, has finally released a statement. Bill waited a beat for the next to appear on the monitor. On the morning of June 6th, an unknown pathogen affected the residents of Bunker Hill, Indiana. The situation is townwide, and the CDC, with the assistance of the National Guard, has taken these extreme quarantine measures to ensure the safety of the surrounding counties and the general population at large. The origins of this disease, its gestation period, and how it is transmitted have all yet to be identified. But the main symptom is consistent with all infected. Every resident who is physically in the town of Bunker Hill at 6 a.m. on the morning of June 6th is experiencing paralysis from the waist down. Every man, woman, and child has become paralyzed. This episode of Horror Hill is proudly brought to you by Raycon. This one's for all you audiophiles listening out there. I'm sure you already realize that not all wireless earbuds are created equal, and there are certainly a lot to choose from, and you don't always get what you pay for. So if you are in the market for a new set, I got one word for you. Raycon. Whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Not what your insufferable neighbor is listening to, or what that other schlub at the mall is listening to, but what you're listening to. It's a deeply personal experience. But before you go dropping literally hundreds of dollars in a pair, you need to check out the new wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbud at the market, and that they sound just as amazing, and this is from personal experience, as other top brands you know. They're probably the most comfortable wireless earbuds I've ever owned. Perfect for conference calls at work or at home, or just binging on podcasts wherever. They look and feel great, both stylish and discreet, with no obnoxious dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. And they are just so perfect for working out. I just love them, and I've owned a lot of earbuds over the years. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash hill. That's buyraycon, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash hill, H-I-L-L, for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. One more time, that's buyraycon.com slash hill. Thank you for your support of this program and of the sponsors that make it possible. You've been listening to The Fubar Ritual by Kevin David Anderson. When you deal with the devil, it's always best to read the fine print. In our third and final story this evening, we'll join some old friends from season one of the show as I present to you the continuation of Luciano Morano's listener-favorite series of grim fairy tales with attitude. Without further ado, from author Luciano Morano, I give you Storybook Gothic 3 Fiend's Folly Part 1 
and the bowels of the Clover Patch Psychiatric Center in the underground cells where there is only artificial light and heavily filtered air and only the most dangerous. The truly hopeless cases are housed. The wolf fought against the bonds that kept him lashed to his bed. His mighty jaws strained against the muzzle, which kept him silent and unable to bite his attendants. The wolf's body ached. His fever raged, and otherworldly phantasmagoric visions blazed in his brain even as his unblinking eyes were fixed on the blank ceiling above. He saw little old ladies coupling with enormous boars, the forest consumed by fire, teeth gnawing flesh, drawing blood, blood flowing over all. So much blood. And he saw the bear, too, in his more lucid moments, imagined enacting horrible retribution against the creature that had stolen his identity. Erections, insistent and painfully hard, plagued the wolf regularly, along with the bugs that seemed to squirm beneath his flesh. Microwaves painfully assaulted his teeth. Yet, he still could not make himself understood by these people, these doctors, who insisted he was simply a sick animal in need of help. He could not make them understand the pain of a non-entity. The wolf, last living specimen of a once proud species, revered and reviled in equal measure, was lost in the thicket of madness when, late one night, the door to his room opened unexpectedly. He shivered, convulsed, but saw and heard nothing as two figures stood whispering in the hall. Please do be careful, said a nervous man, and be quick, please hurry. The other, a small thin figure with a steady deliberate voice said, Of course. The man cleared his throat and blurted, I love you, Goldie. She laughed, her voice sugar and spice, honey and silk. That's sweet. Gloria Goldilocks walked unflinchingly into the wolf's room, quietly shutting the steel-reinforced door behind her and immediately shimmying out of her standard-issue patient sweatpants. She approached the wolf as one might the edge of a bottomless chasm, with all the appropriate awe and morbid interest such a spectacle requires, running a hand lightly over the tightly bunched muscles of his straining arm. She studied his twitching face a moment, then quickly leapt up and mounted the beast. Momentarily, this new sensation drug the wolf's mind back to the moment, back to reality, and his eyes focused on the face above him. She was young, pale and beautiful. Her golden hair, recently shaved, had been allowed to grow back in a single stripe down the middle. A budding mohawk, the haircut of a warrior, preparing for battle. Goldie rode the wolf slowly and rhythmically, without passion, feeling the limitless potential of his anger throbbing inside her, knowing the awful strength of the power she courted and reveling in it. I know, she cooed. 
I know it's not fair. Tears streamed down the wolf's eyes as the scene blurred and gave way once more to his delusions. Even so, his body remained attentive to Goldie's ministrations. She reached out a single finger and drug it across his tear-streaked muzzle, brought it to her pink lips, and sucked. Oh my, Goldie whispered. What big tears you have. The beast convulsed inside her, a growl spilling from his throat like distant thunder. She thrust against him once more, twice, then she promptly dismounted and retrieved her pants. All the better to miss me with, my dear, she said from the doorway. Turning, she wiggled her fingers in a silly little wave. See you tomorrow. The automatic doors leapt apart as Detective Pixie Emberlight walked out of the harsh chill of McGregor's grocery, away from the humming glare of fluorescent lights, and into the sticky, humid air of encroaching evening, a paper bag tucked beneath one arm. It was the night before her partners returned to work following a temporary suspension for excessive use of force, and she was on her way to a celebratory dinner at the Grislowski house. Apparently... Mama and Baby were just as glad as Grizz himself that he was returning to work. Pixie had in her bag a family-sized box of honey buns, Grizz's favorite snack, and two six-packs, beer for the grown-ups, root beer for the teenage baby. She did not enjoy domestic rituals like family dinners or backyard barbecues and most often declined invitations from her partner to attend such frivolous functions. This time, though... She'd found herself out of excuses, and, surprisingly, not exactly dreading the idea of a boringly wholesome night in. Perhaps it might act as a sort of emotional palate cleanser after the many sordid hours she'd spent tailing the doctor. As she neared her tiny motorcycle, a deep and cocky voice halted her mid-stride, cutting through her distracted thoughts like a chainsaw through tissue paper. "'Where are you off to, little fairy?' Pixie turned as an enormous white bear strode forth from the shadows to stand within the circles of light cast by the nearest parking lot lamp. He was at least a head taller than even Grizz, his body a series of great muscle slabs, shifting beneath his fresh, snow-colored coat. "'Allow me to introduce myself,' the bear said, towering over the fairy detective. Blocking out the lamp, he held out one giant paw. "'I know who you are, Frost.' Pixie ignored the gesture. What do you want? Looking for a job? The white bear chuckled. Hardly, dear Pixie. I'm gainfully employed, I assure you. In fact, it's a business matter which motivates my interrupting your plans tonight. Talk faster, Frost. I'm getting old waiting on your point. Delightful. Jackson Frost's smile widened to show his many, many pointed teeth. I can see why he's so fond of you. Alas, even the blind devotion of your powerful partner will not save you if you disregard my warning. Warning? Pixie set the bag down in the sidecar of her bike, wings flexing and already planning her first, second, and third move, should it come to that. You threatening me? Oh, please. The bear shook his head slowly. If you really know who I am then you should know that if I meant you harm, they'd already be discovering your body. 
His nose, a strangely effeminate shade of pink, the same odd hue as his one eye, the one not covered by a black leather patch, twitched slightly, as if detecting an enticing smell. Cease your surveillance of the doctor, he said. You will be visited tomorrow by an emissary of my employer acting in a more formal manner. But I came to tell you personally, candidly, out of respect for our shared profession. Your former profession, Frost. You're not a cop anymore, thank the gods. Yes. The bear crossed his mighty arms. Well, be that as it may, heed the warning, Pixie, and see that Grizz does as well. He won't want to, of course, knowing my ex-partner, but you must work your wiles and make him see reason. Pixie smirked. Nobody makes Grizz do anything he doesn't want to do. Frost bent quickly, bringing his mouth suddenly very close to her face, good eye glinting as he saw Pixie flinch. He whispered slowly, obviously savoring each word. I did. Dinner was pleasant enough, though Pixie found it hard to push Frost's ominous appearance from her mind and enjoy it completely. Mama and Baby, so pleased to have her over again, did not seem to notice, bustling about in the kitchen and fussing over her as if she were a starving kitten brought in from the cold. They constantly refilled her glass, put more food on her plate, showered her with attention. But Grizz clearly saw she was distracted. He growled between terse answers when Mama tried to drag him into conversation and quickly guzzled his way through most of the beer Pixie had brought, despite his wife's smoldering glares of disapproval. "'It's so wonderful to see you again, Pixie,' my Ling, Mama Grizzlowski said, clearing the dessert plates." The voluptuous panda had an easy, charming grace, very much in contrast to her husband's curmudgeonly edge. She nodded at Grizz. This one's certainly ready to get back to work, I can tell you. I think he enjoys your company and being attacked by wolves more than he does spending time with his family. There's less nagging at work, Grizz said, draining his latest beer. I'll be glad to have him back again, Pixie said, hoping to ease the tension round the table. Undercover work is getting very exhausting. From the kitchen, about the clattering of plates being put in the sink, Mama called. Oh, I heard about that terrible ordeal with Hansel and Gretel. That must have been awful. Baby leaned forward. Did you really punch out that man's eye, Pixie? Riz growled. Baby sat back, arms crossed. She was tall for her age, and lean, with light brown fur and the shading around her eyes typical of her mother's species, but the quick temper of her father. It was an ugly fight, Pixie offered, eyes moving from her partner to his sullen daughter. Sure could have used your dad's help. Yeah, Baby said, brightening. Dad could have just been his grumpy root self and the bad guys would get so bored they'd surrender. Grizz growled again, louder. Hey, Pixie said jumping down for the makeshift booster seat of stacked phone books. Didn't you want to show me something in the garage? How's the hobby, big guy? Grizz pushed his chair noisily back from the table and stalked out of the room, leaving her to catch up. 
In the garage, Pixie examined the homemade fishing lures spread over a folding card table as Grizz passed the dust-covered exercise equipment in the corner and walked to a small refrigerator, reaching inside for a can of beer. Have a drink. Oh, no thanks. Pixie turned one bright purple fly over in her tiny hands. This is pretty cool. It's a waste of time. Grizz slumped onto the neglected weight bench. None of it amounts to anything. They never really forgave me, Pixie, for what almost happened with Goldie. We got a note from her, you know, just the other day, for Baby's birthday. How is that even possible? Riz sighed. Somebody inside is doing her favors. The chief says internal affairs is looking into it, but now Mama wants to move. She don't trust me to protect them anymore. Pixie's hands played over the lures. Come on, just a few more years and you're retired. Then why not move? I'd go to the mountains. All bears love the mountains, right? He snorted. About as much as all fairies love lip gloss. Pixie's decidedly unfairy-like behavior was a source of constant teasing from her partner. She studied him for a moment, seeing in the harsh light of the garage that his fur was even grayer, his eyes more bloodshot and his gut flabbier than she'd thought in the dining room. Her partner did not look well. Are you all right, big guy? Grizz slipped his beer, stifled a harsh cough, just bored. Well then, Pixie said, putting down an orange fly, I've got good news for you. She told him the latest updates from her surveillance of Dr. Frank Odenwald, the man Grizz had punched to earn his suspension. She told him about the strange hours he kept, the large boxes delivered daily to his laboratory, a massive space in the industrial part of the city that he could not possibly afford on his own. Then, finally, she told him about Frost. I knew it was something, Gris said, finishing his beer and going for another. I could smell it on you. Why does he hate you so much, Gris? Pixie fluttered her pink wings and flew up to stand, balancing on the bar of the weight bench. Well, he wasn't only my partner back in the day. Risk cracked open a fresh can. He was my training officer. I'd just been promoted up from uniform and he was a legend back then. Real superstar. I thought I was lucky. I wanted to be just like him. What happened? You already know that part, Gris said standing over the mess of fly-tying materials and half-finished lures, a look of disgust on his face. When the investigation was finished up and he knew he was sunk, he asked me to lie for him. Thought I owed him that, I guess. Same species and all. He assumed I'd have his back no matter what. Well, I didn't lie for him when he was drummed off the force. That's why he hates me. Pixie flew over onto the table and stood among the debris of Grizz's hated hobby, looking up at him. You did the right thing. I know that, Grizz sneered. He was bad by the end, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a damn good cop once upon a time, Pixie. I knew something was wrong. I should have tried harder to make him come around, but I didn't know half of what he was into. I learned later, like we all did. They talk about it. Pixie said. At the academy, they teach a class on him. Grizz laughed. I heard. He'd love that. 
then I guess you know already that he got off lucky. His record was stellar. His arrests too publicized. They couldn't risk a full investigation overturning any of that evidence. Freeing those guys. Hopinski had just taken over as chief, and the political powers downtown had shifted, so there was no interest in rocking the boat. But they couldn't let him stay, either. So in return for avoiding jail time, Frost agreed not to fight being booted for a failed drug test. Wasn't a lie. He was wired in all kinds of stuff by then. Still, even to this day, nobody's sure of all the bad things he did behind a badge. But why does he care about the doctor? Pixie asked. Guess we'll find out tomorrow. Would you could bet that if Jackson Frost is interested, it's because there's something in it for him. He's for sale, but he ain't cheap. So it's probably something he really wants. Two good eyes, Pixie said. What's the story there, anyway? They take his eye along with his badge? Grizz grinned. <laughs> Actually, that was me. The ancient tortoise slowly removed his horn-rimmed glasses, checked his Rolex, and sighed considerably. You know I'm right, Jack. And you know I'm not one to waste my considerably valuable time coming down here for nothing. Call it off. Across the wide, paper-littered desk, Chief Jack Hopinski glared silently at this, his first appointment of the day, knowing things could only possibly get better afterward. I'll make it real easy for you. Mortimer Sterling said, crossing his short arms across the highly polished surface of his chest plate. Call off the surveillance of Dr. Frank Odenwald today, and it's no harm, no foul. He had a boy in a box, Pixie said from where she hovered near a filing cabinet in the corner of the chief's office. That, I would say, is at least a little foul. The old tortoise chuckled. Grow up, detective. Three experts. Yours, mine, and an independent doctor examined the puppet. It barely scored above a three on the cricket conscious continuum. It's not alive. The man can do what he likes with his property. No matter how you feel about it. He was naked, Pixie said. Gagged. It was naked, the tortoise said. It was gagged. But that's all right, because as the experts will testify, it doesn't have any feelings. He turned to Herpinski. The guy is a creep. So what? Is that a crime? He is willing to drop all charges against Grislowski and the department if the harassment stops today. I really think you should consider it, Jack. We both know... This goes badly for you at trial. The bear's not exactly a stellar officer these days. Hell, he didn't even show up today. That's enough, Pixie said, eyes darting to the still empty door. 
The tortoise let loose one loud, barking laugh. <laughs> Jack, who is this fairy? Is she kidding? Do you understand the favor I'm doing you? As part of accepting my client's assistance with his legal situation and medical bills, which you would have had to pay, incidentally. The doctor has agreed to sign whatever release and indemnification papers you want. The chubby gray rabbit leaned forward and spoke at last. Tell me, Morty, for old time's sake, why do the Grimm sisters care what happened to this pervert? The shell-backed lawyer's eyes narrowed ever so slightly, then he put on his glasses and shrugged. I can't confirm the identity of my client, Jack. You know better. Wilted greens to that, the chief said, a bit of the familiar fire creeping back into his voice. We all know you only represent one client. The old man's too comatose to care anymore, so it must be the girl's. Why? The Grim Sisters are exemplary philanthropists, Mortimer said. They donate immensely to numerous charitable causes, including police-sponsored programs, I might add. Their only concern is the increasingly fascist police state that seems to be blossoming here under your leadership, Jack. That, and protecting a fellow citizen's civil rights. Believe me, this deal is best for everyone. Refuse, and things will get bad for you, and they will get even worse for the bear. An enormous figure darkened the doorway of the chief's office. Tell those upper-crest ghouls not to do me any favors, you cold-blooded shyster. Gris said. Pixie winked at her prodigal partner returned, better late than never. The rabbit's ears twitched. Was he nervous? Or just glad somebody finally said what he could not? It was impossible to say. Sterling stood, retrieved his briefcase. Well, I can see productive discourse has reached a peak. Jack... I'll expect to hear from you by close of business today, one way or the other. Ignoring Pixie, he walked, very, very slowly, even for a ridiculously old tortoise, out of the room. When you are the highest paying lawyer in the land, you move as fast as you want. Grizz walked in, slamming the door shut behind him. Sorry I'm late. Hapinski reached into his top desk drawer and tossed something small and shiny across the desk at Grizz. His badge. Welcome back. Now lay off the doctor, both of you! Come on, chief, Pixie said, fluttering to the edge of the desk. I said lay off. I've made up my mind. Unless you find him standing over a dead body, actually holding a bloody knife, the doctor is off limits. Got it? Crunchy carrots. No. Please go solve some real crimes. 
Grim Enterprise occupies the entirety of an immense and formidable ebony skyscraper in the busiest part of downtown, a stake driven into the heart of the city. The uppermost floors are strictly private, living quarters for grim family members and special guests, reachable only by a secure elevator that leads straight up from an exclusive parking area below the street. Separated from the rest of the building, where a small army of lawyers, designers, clerks, accountants, and assistants go about tending the family's myriad of business concerns around the globe, in the largest of these private chambers, Cyrus Grimm lay clinging to an existence somewhere between comatose and dead. An army of security guards stood ready at every possible point of entrance to this inner sanctum. Gremlins, automatons, domestic servants, and a horde of even more mercenary creatures loyal only to the Grimm family and prepared to make short work of uninvited or disfavored guests. Before the decrepit patriarch's gargantuan bed, where the withered old man lay with a forest of tubes and wires leading up from his frail form to an array of beeping, clicking, hissing contraptions, Dr. Frank Odenwald stood nervously watching the two identical young men who so casually held his fate in their perfectly manicured hands. He was no stranger to being hated. His work and the pearl-clutching headlines it inspired had made him a pariah, a criminal even, all over the world from the most modern cities to remote yet unnamed corners of the planet. Such was the price of true genius, he often thought, but even a controversy-courting visionary like himself was unaccustomed to the pure thoroughbred hatred emanating from the eyes of the Grimm sisters. Lilith and Siren Grimm, thin, pale girls dressed in black Lolita petticoats, high lace collars, and frilly cuffs sat in twin plush chairs on either side of their father's bed, studying the doctor. Silent, wingless fairy servants scurried this way and that, tending to the old man and fastidiously tidying the dim, cavernous room. The air was cool, and so over-purified it had no scent. Aside from choice of headwear, Lilith and her usual hood-like bonnet, and Siren, long dark hair cascading down from beneath a miniature top hat, the sisters could not be differentiated. Their domineeringly insistent personal aesthetics carried over to the staff as well, and the forcibly earthbound fairies were likewise made up in an overly coquettish, doll-like fashion. Pleated skirts and high socks, ruffled maid costumes, lots of pigtails and bows. The deranged duo were grown-ups playing princess, living in an enormous dollhouse with living playthings plenty at their disposal and a father in no condition to end their fun these days. We trust this is the only such delay we can expect, Lilith said, voice like the night wind playing among tombstones. Yes, the doctor nodded vigorously, eyes wide behind his tiny gold spectacles. Yes, I'm terribly sorry and grateful. I'm grateful for your intervention with the police. His new false teeth paid for with grim family money, or shinier than the others, and his voice still seemed strange to himself, the wires having only recently been removed from his shattered jaw after many treatments by the world's finest potion makers and surgeons, paid for also with grim cash. The police do not concern us, 
Siren said. Only results. I understand. Odenwald clasped his hands tightly together. Zadal was a previous contract taken on before I began to work for your father. It was past due. I had to get it shipped. Siren snapped the black polish-tipped fingers on one hand. A tiny servant rushed forward, balancing precariously on the precipitous high heels of her costume, carrying on a huge silver tray a teapot and two bone china cups. We trust, Doctor, that there is nothing else distracting you from your work for Father, Siren said, pouring herself a cup of hot chocolate. No, he said. Nothing. Wonderful. Still, said Lilith, we are concerned by your lack of progress. We are sending a representative with you, someone to help keep you focused. It's really not necessary. We feel it is. Lilith said, pouring herself a cup of the hot brown beverage. I'm only a little behind, the doctor said. If only they'd leave me alone, but they won't. It's a fairy. She hounds me. And the bear, since his return, that awful brute, his meddlesome little lackeys have been in my shadow every time. We know, Siren said, blowing gently on the steaming contents of her cup. We are aware, agreed Lilith doing the same. The sister's violet-painted lips pursed and smiled rhythmically, in perfect unison, like the blinking eyes of a strange alien creature. Our representatives will attend to that as well, Siren said. As if on cue, something large and white moved in the far corner of the room. The doctor turned to stare, face twitching slightly as he beheld the full figure of Jackson Frost. We trust you will see to this, Frost, Lilith said, in a more productive manner than your last attempt, Siren added. Frost bowed his head slightly. Clearly I was too kind. Clearly, Lilith said. Obviously, Siren agreed. Frost smiled. It won't happen again. Siren dipped a slender finger into her cup of scolding liquid chocolate and lifted it to the fairy maid's face, forcing the sticky digit into the girl's toothless mouth. Her gums were an angry red horror show, still not healed from when the sisters had recently extracted them. Some girls are unspeakably cruel to their toys. I'll handle it, Frost said. Gladly. Wonderful. Lilith returned her cup to the tray. Excellent, said Siren, sliding her fingers slowly in and out of the trembling fairy's mouth. From somewhere among the folds of her many skirts, Lilith retrieved a large leather-bound book. Several fairies could not help but stop what they were doing to gaze at it with shimmering eyes full of budding tears. Undoing the ornate clasp, Lilith began to leisurely leaf through the pages. On each was pinned a set of translucent wings like a collector's stamps or pressed flowers. Somewhere in the room, a small cry escaped a tortured throat, and Lilith's slitted eyes watched closely as the servants rushed back to their respective tasks, except for the deliverer of the hot chocolate, of course. She did not dare move as Siren slid her now clean finger from her mouth at last and patted the fairy's head. Now then, off you go she said. Turning to Frost and the doctor, she added, 
you as well. Father hasn't much time. Eyes on her book of severed wings, Lilith said, Doctor, when the prison of his flesh has been conquered, you will be rewarded as agreed. Funds, facilities, subjects, all will be made available to you without restriction. Thank you, Odenwald bowed. But, Siren said, fail us, and there will be no escape. There are, after all, not many places left for you to hide these days. In fact, we believe some officials are still investigating the murder of several rural European villagers some years ago. A nasty bit of business in which your name keeps popping up. They're so very brutal in those remote hamlets of the old world, not exactly prone to fair trials or due process. It wouldn't do for you to end up back there, would it? Dr. Odenwald nodded and walked quickly to the door. Frost, turning to follow, halted, inwardly cringing at the sudden snap of fingers. Lilith said, Do you remain certain you can handle the detectives? Time is running out and they seem more determined than you led us to believe. Frost flexed his claws. I'm glad I was wrong. Eyes still fixed on her ghastly collection, Lilith said. Very well. But please, Frost, don't clip the little fairy's pretty wings. She ran her fingers reverently over the pages before her. A bright blue specimen. We want to do that. This episode of Horror Hill is proudly brought to you by Shudder. Shudder is the streaming video service that is every horror fan's best friend. Whenever I'm in the mood for horror, which is often, Shudder never disappoints. What is Shudder, you may ask? Shudder is a premium video service brought to you by AMC Networks, specializing in horror, thrillers, and the supernatural uncut and commercial-free with exclusive original titles you won't find anywhere else and an expertly curated catalog of all the best vintage and current titles you won't find anywhere else. Available to stream on most devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Roku, and Android devices for just $5.99 a month or $56.99 per year. Often considered the Netflix of horror, Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment available, ad-free and with unlimited access. And for those of you out there old enough to remember Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs, I know I do, you'll be excited to hear about the last drive-in with, you guessed it, Joe Bob Briggs. Along with his encyclopedic knowledge of genre films and his snarky, acerbic sense of humor that's uh, just a little bit country, You'll definitely laugh your ass off, and you might just learn something new about your favorite horror films. Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes titles like the acclaimed Tigers Are Not Afraid, One Cut of the Dead, Revenge, and the Creepshow TV series produced by Greg Nicotero and based on the famous films by George Romero. To try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code HILL. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R. 
Once again, that's Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, and use promo code HILL. Thank you for your support of this program and of the sponsors that make it possible. Closing time approached as Grizz and Pixie sat in a secluded corner table at the wishing well, comparing notes from several weeks of off-the-clock surveillance. Anything else? He asked. How's your wife handling all this unpaid overtime? Grizz drained his beer in silent response. Actually, Pixie added, there is one more thing, unrelated. I finally got a response from the feds. Let me guess, Grizz said. I don't get it, Grizz. I have the numbers. I have the reports. At least two dozen fairies have gone missing in the last three years, and nobody cares. You know what they think, he said. Flighty, irresponsible, transient. They don't care. Grizz waved the empty mug above his head. Sorry, big guy, said the man behind the bar. I think that's it for you. Grizz tapped one long claw against the badge pinned to his trench coat lapel. Yeah, I know, the bartender said. That becomes valid after the 26th round, though. You want some coffee? Grizz growled. One more, came a voice from the far side of the nearly empty bar. One more for the bear. I'll vouch for him. And one more for his partner. And one more for me, too. Then we leave. Chief Jack Hopinski swiveled his stool around to face the detectives as the bartender nodded and went to fetch the drinks. He leapt down to the floor and hopped over to them. Have a drink with a has-been gumshoe, the rabbit said, climbing onto the chair beside Pixie. One for the road before it gets too late. Then, I'll call some cars to take us home. Hi, Chief, Pixie said. You all right? Depends. How's our friend, the good doctor? That was the subject of conversation before I ambled over, was it not? Grizz and Pixie exchanged a quick telling glance. It's fine, the rabbit said, as their drinks were delivered. How little do you think of me? I know what you're doing. Off the clock, on your own time, there's not a lot I can do, right? So, what's the latest? Chief, Pixie said, cradling her glass of scotch in both hands. It's just that we know the sisters are up to something. You have to understand, Grizz added, how dangerous it is that they have a legitimate mad scientist on the payroll. I know. The rabbit said. I know all about Odenwald. I've known since he showed up in the city. I'm going to say something to you now, and if you repeat it, I'll deny everything and have you written up. I know what you think of me. I know what they say. What they've been saying since I didn't nail Frost to the wall back in the day. At the mention of his former partner, Grizz bristled. But that doesn't matter, Hapinski went on. Officially, on the record, I meant what I said. Leave the doctor alone. But between us, right now... He leaned in and looked from Grizz to Pixie, nose twitching. Between us, I say keep on it. I'll cover with the top brass as long as I can. Give me something concrete, and let's get the bastards. All of them. It could get ugly, Grizz said. Not like with Frost, I mean real ugly. The sisters won't let it go. They have connections. If we push, they'll push back. Lepinski smiled, something neither the fairy nor the bear could recall having seen before. Shadows of a door-kicking hellraiser passed over his sagging bureaucrat's face. 
Since when are you afraid of getting a little dirty, Grizz? There's what's legal, and there's what's right. So, what are we going to do? Grizz drained his beer and slammed the empty mug onto the table. Whatever it takes, he said. Pixie patted his paw. Damn right, big guy. But Chief, why are you so scared of the doctor? The rabbit looked down at his tiny paws, absently swirled the remnants of his drink. It's Cyrus. The old man? Pixie asked. He's a monster who just happens to look like an old man, Hopinski said. Long ago, before your time, Grimm was just a shady developer, a would-be real estate tycoon. But he was ambitious, and an ambitious human is the most dangerous animal there is. He led a mercenary army into deep, dark wood. All those condos and townhomes, the mall that used to be rough territory. When I was walking the beat, we had a live-and-let-live policy about the place. Orcs, goblins, elves, and darker sprites, and all the gremlins, we left them alone if they stayed in there. But Grim, he rousted them. He went where even the toughest cops would not. He torched the forest and claimed the land, built up the city you know on blood-soaked ground of the world that was. The forest residents who didn't run, he hired. The ones he couldn't buy, well, they vanished. His enemies have a way of disappearing. The rabbit sighed. Rumor has it that the girls are cut off when the family goes. Incentive, you get it? Incentive to take care of Daddy. He's almost dead now. But once upon a time, he was a genuine terror. I saw it. Don't think for one second that he'll go quietly. Knowing what we do about the doctor's special brand of skills, I think that's a partnership worth worrying about. Time ceased to matter. There was only the work. The work he'd done. The failures and breakthroughs and the work still before him. So very long a way to go yet. And the bear, too. Always there was the bear. Dr. Odenwald chanced to look up from his cluttered workshop table and found Jackson Frost in his customary spot in the corner, watching his progress with a near-psychopathic lack of interest. What did it matter to the bear if he failed? It didn't, of course. That was the point. The beast would enjoy ripping the flesh from his aching old bones as surely as he would delight in being present for the delivery of the final product. Perhaps even more so. Odenwald wiped his brow on the sleeve of his white lab coat and stretched his back. It had not always been this way, he thought. Once, many, many years ago now, he'd had all the wealth and power of his family name to ensure his work proceeded undeterred. He had been young so confident. Driven, yes, that was the word. But small minds and jealous inferiors, stuffy suppression and ambitious policemen had slowed him with one obstacle after another, dogged him from country to country. Until now, at last, he was here, a glorified slave beneath the watchful eye of a carnage-hungry master. He who had once gifted the spark of life to dead flesh. How far he had fallen. Odenwald glared at his wrinkled, arthritic hands as he walked to the window for a breath of fresh air. Ironic, wasn't it? 
that after a lifetime of working to reanimate the dead to save life from the treacherous failings of the flesh, at last his own body was coming apart just when he was closer than he'd ever been to finally getting it right. He dared a quick peek at the white bear as he reached out to open the window, but Frost gave no sign he noticed the doctor's work stoppage. A form across the street caught the old man's eye, and he felt his pulse begin to race. On a break, doctor, Frost asked in a cool, deadpan whisper. Are you so very confident as to enjoy it, I wonder? Rest is a crucial part of the process, the old man said, eyes fixated across the street. I don't expect a brute like you to understand the mental strain of my work, Frost said. I'm going to enjoy killing you, old man. Perhaps you should focus more on your own task, guard dog. I spy with my little eye something small, with pink wings, that should not be here. Frost straightened and followed the old man's line of sight. The fairy, he growled. Perhaps we both oversold ourselves to our patrons, Odenwald said, but the bear was already at the door, on his way out. The old man laughed. Was it something I said? Two weeks ago, Jackson Frost sat in the dark, reclining on the bed of a shabby by-the-hour motel room, watching the throbbing red light of the vacancy sign blink against the drawn tight window shades, listening to the rushing spray of the shower. The bathroom door was slightly ajar, and through the thin glowing void, wisps of steam escaped. He sipped his drink and imagined Misty Muffet inside, standing beneath the hot water, soapy hands working over her wet, flushed skin, fingers removing any last sticky traces of honey his tongue had somehow missed. The empty jar, which had been unopened when they arrived at the Timberland Lodge just two fervent hours ago, sat on the nightstand next to the whiskey bottle. The smoky liquor burned his throat, pairing perfectly with the aftertaste cocktail of cloying floral honey and the salt of misty sweat. It is good to be alive, Frost thought, and was surprised to find that he meant it too. The notion so utterly out of character made him laugh. Maybe, he mused, this will all work out okay after all. Maybe he actually still cared if it did. The enormous white bear drained his cup and allowed his good eye to droop closed. The afterimage of the slowly strobing red light glowed against the skin of his eyelid, while behind the adjacent leather patch its damaged twin saw only darkness. That, he thought, is as good a metaphor as any for my life. There had always been a blackness inside Frost, a vast internal emptiness that made him hungry for more than his share, angry about things he could not articulate. He tried unsuccessfully to fill it with a lot of different things through the years, the pursuits of which had forced him to make hard choices and pay hefty fares. The blinding of his one eye had not diminished his sight, Frost now understood, so much as it had simply split his perspective, casting part of his attention permanently inward toward the abyss from which had sprung so many of his demons. He was able to keep a more vigilant guard now, and though he still felt them there, circling unseen in the dark like sharks throughout nighttime waters, 
These days they only rarely broke the surface. The spray of the shower was suddenly cut off, and he heard Misty singing lightly in the other room as she toweled herself dry. The Homicide Division's administrative aide had only been an intern when Frost was still on the job. They had kept their illicit affair a secret, inter-office romances being strictly forbidden. Not that Frost had ever cared much about the rules, but he did care about Misty. He cared very much, and did not want to see her get in trouble over him. Later, as she advanced and his own career went up in flames, a blaze ignited. Admittedly, by his own greed and bravado, he'd been even more relieved their involvement remained unknown, for her sake. That she continued to see him at all in light of his dismissal, knowing what it could do to her career, surprised Frost every single time they met. That he had not yet driven her away somehow was nothing short of miraculous. You look sad, said Misty, a leggy silhouette in the steam-filled doorway. I'm not, he said. Really, I'm not. Misty padded toward the bed, wrapping a towel around herself and glancing at the clock above the boxy, ancient TV. Do you have to leave soon? I should. I've been away from the doctor too long. That guy gives me the creeps, Misty said roughly combing out her short, dark hair with her fingers. It's almost over now. Frost sat up and placed his empty cup on the nightstand. The guy's a fraud, and Cyrus can't possibly live much longer. When he dies, I'll handle the creep, and then get paid before those spoiled bitches lose control of Daddy's money. Misty came around to stand between his knees, running her hands through his snow-white fur. I know that you know what you're doing, Frost. But I wish you hadn't been so mean to Pixie outside the grocery store. She's only doing her job. I just don't want her to get hurt, Frost said. And what about Grizz? Frost laughed and ran a paw across his face, feeling the thick leather of the eye patch. He's the best friend I've ever had. There's a way for everyone to win here. I promise. Then what? Misty asked, cradling his face in her hands. Where will you go? Wherever you want. Don't do it for me, Frost. I already told you. I love you. But that doesn't mean I owe you anything more than the truth. I know. Frost felt something large and hungry turn over deep inside himself. Tamped it down again. I guess I'm just trying to even things up a little on the way out. Before I'm too old. And it's too late. You'll never break even that way, baby. You're a lousy accountant. Misty, think of the good we could do with that money. She backed away, bending to rifle through her purse, which she hurriedly tossed along with her clothes onto the ratty recliner in the corner. She finally came up grinning, holding a fresh jar of honey. Think of the good we could do with this. Do you have time? You'll need another shower. Misty loosened the towel with one hand, let it drop to the floor. Well... Maybe this time I'll have some company. Present. The front door of the Grislowski house was struck once, twice, and finally pushed in, the lock giving way against the force of Jackson Frost's insistence. He walked stiffly, sliding along the short hallway into the living room, nudging photos off the wall. It was late. Dark. 
but he knew where he was going despite having not been at the house for quite some time. In his mind, the past was very clear. He spent a great deal of time there. In the living room, he stood swaying in the blackness, eye closed, perhaps recalling better times, until the sound of a very large shotgun being cocked made his ears twitch. I thought I made myself very clear, Mama Guzlowski said, voice neither angry nor nervous, just horribly resigned to the violence to come. One Paul Jackson, just one, I said, and I'll do worse than take your eye. The overhead light blazed to life, and the interloper turned slowly to face his reluctant, hostile host. You look lovely, Mailing, Frost said, a genuine smile spreading over his exhausted face. Better than ever. Why, Jackson? Why are you going to make me kill you tonight? He slowly opened his dark peacoat to reveal a bloody wreckage that was once his torso, his usually pristine fur, once white as snow, was the dark maroon of a playboy's soiled smoking jacket. If you're looking to draw first blood mailing, you're too late. He collapsed onto the sofa. I'm here to see your husband. I'm afraid it's that kind of night. Why? She did not lower the gun an inch. Frost gave a weak, wet laugh, blood trickling from the corner of his mouth. Don't you know? Because he's the best. Always was. Though I admit that he had a great teacher. From the hallway, Grizz growled. That was long ago, Frost. What kind of trouble are you bringing into my house? The brown bear stepped into the light. A large handgun leveled at his former partner. Frost pressed a paw to his seeping side. Well, you're certainly the best there is now. His head lulled forward. Eyes drooping closed. Grizz neared, poked him with the pistol. Wake up, Frost! Mama remained stoic, gun trained unfailingly at the white bear. They got her, Frost mumbled. They got her, Grizz. I'm sorry. Pixie. Grizz dropped to one knee and began to shake Frost. You've seen her! Where is she? God, Mama said. It's been three days, Grizz. Is she alive? Frost, unconscious, gave no answer. He just sat there, bleeding on the Grizzlowski couch. Grizz shook him harder. Wake up, Frost! You don't get to die yet! Where is she? I'm sorry, Grizz, Frost said weakly. I did it. They've got her now. I... I never thought... I never believed it would work, Grizz said. What worked? What happened? Frost slouched lower, eyes drooping closed. It's the old man. The doctor did his thing, and the old man's up and about again. Frost began to laugh. He's up and about all right, and in one hell of a mood. Grizz screamed. The window shook in their panes. Car alarms were set off around the city. The moon fled behind the clouds, and night predators within a dozen miles went scurrying for cover. The white bear's eyes snapped open. His laughter died a quick, brutal death in his throat. Tell me where, Gris said. 
Tell me everything. You've been listening to Storybook Gothic 3, Fiend's Folly, Part 1, by Luciano Morano. To catch up on the other excellent and very popular segments of Storybook Gothic, please visit Season 1 of Horror Hill. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week, when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify plumbed from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's episode featured tales from the very talented M.M. Kelly, Kevin David Anderson, and Luciana Morano. A Priest Saved Me was written by and presented to you courtesy of M.M. Kelly. Kelly is a horror and speculative fiction writer based in Loveland, Ohio. He is currently working as a scientist during the day, and uses the night to craft weird and creepy tales for all to enjoy. His works span the gamut of topics and tropes, from ghosts to cryptids to witches to body horrors and eldritch abominations. For the latest from M.M. Kelly, visit his blog at mmkellywrites.wordpress.com or connect with him on Facebook, Twitter, or Reddit. That's Kelly with two E's, K-E-L-L-E-Y. The Fubar Ritual was written by and presented courtesy of Kevin David Anderson. Anderson's debut novel, The Geeky Cult Zombie Romp, Night of the Living Trekkies, is a funny, offbeat novel exploring the pop culture carnage that ensues when the undead crash a Star Trek convention. His latest book, Midnight Men, The Supernatural Adventures of Earl and Dale, was inspired by the short story Green Eyes and Chili Dogs, produced by yours truly, Jason Hill and heard on my YouTube channel and on the Simply Scary Podcast Season 3, Episode 6. Anderson's stories have appeared in over a hundred publications and on fantastic podcasts such as The Drabblecast, Pseudopod, The No Sleep Podcast, Horror Hill, and The Simply Scary Podcast. In addition, he's an active member of the Horror Writers Association and currently works in special education. For more information on him, visit KevinDavidAnderson.com Fiend's Folly Part 1 was written by and presented courtesy of Luciano Murano. Luciano is a journalist, photographer, and author. His award-winning reporting, both written and photographic, has appeared in numerous regional and national publications. He made his debut as a fiction writer in the extreme horror anthology DOA 3, Bloodbound Books, May 2017 alongside such genre icons as Jack Ketchum, Edward Lee, and Bentley Little, among others. He is also a U.S. Navy veteran. When he's not writing or working, he likes jogging and drinking craft beer, though not at the same time. His favorite movie is Point Break. His favorite book is Something Wicked This Way Comes, and he would choose Wolverine-style healing abilities if he could have any superpower. He lives near Seattle. Get to know him better at www.lucianomorano.com or check out sitmyway101.wordpress.com where he blogs, albeit sporadically. That's sitmyway101.wordpress.com 
If you enjoy what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness... I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, 
you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.